beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I am Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show, where we sit back for the next 60 minutes and talk about what's going on in the world of sports. And boy, is there a ton going on during this past week. And we're going to get to it here in just a little bit. But one of the things I want to start off with tonight's show is, of course, this show is always, each and every week, brought to you on the UltimateSportsTalk.com website. Greg Mitchell, of course, the owner, and he also takes care of uh, handling everything on the website. And I want you to take a look at the right-hand side of the main page because just look at the amount of radio shows that Greg has put together on the website over the past couple of months. We've got some outstanding shows coming up for you, and they've been happening now for the last couple of weeks, and some interesting shows. We've got Hashtag Sports, Gridiron Beauties, Italian Football Weekly, MMA Jam, the NFL Weekly Wrap-Up, Speculation Sports, Sports Cave, Sports on Tap, Sports Palooza, Sports Time Radio, the ER Report, and Variety Bites Radio. And of course, you've got the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, and Mark Donahue and I will be returning in the next month or so with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, where we talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. So just everybody... When you've got some time, take a listen to some of these shows because they are outstanding in their own right and it'll give you an opportunity to stay fresh and uh, just enjoy what we've got offering you here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Well, some of the headlines for this week, we are down to the final four in the NFL playoffs. It's San Francisco and Seattle for the NFC and it's Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos versus Tom Brady and the New England Patriots in the AFC. We're going to take a look at those two ball games, and I'm going to give you my predictions coming up later on in the ball game. Jimmy Haslam of the Cleveland Browns sat down and wrote a letter. A-Rod, of course, was suspended, and we talked to Kate Conroy of LadyLovesPinstripes.com about that. Clayton Kershaw has some new money to play with, and we're going to talk to Bill Ivey from i70.com, and he's the featured reporter for the Kansas City Royals and St. Louis Cardinals, along with also being the head webmaster for i70.com. Bill, always a pleasure to have him on the show. And we lost two TV giants over the past 24 hours. But first, I almost hate to lead off the show with this story tonight, and I'm going to preface it by saying I've watched some really awful television throughout the years. And by even speaking about this show, I think it's a ratings grab, much like I spoke of last week on the Hall of Fame voting debacle by Dan Lebetard. With that being said, I've found the most disturbing, depressing, and destroying of the love of the game on television today. It's called Friday Night Tykes. This is a terrible show. Not only a terrible show, but an absolute deplorable way to treat kids. But not only that, 
I have to wonder the state of parenting in this city. Take politics completely out of this. If you think this is the way to treat your children and how to indoctrinate them into sports at the ages of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and even older, then I have the name of a therapist for you. Just give me a call. I'll give it to you. This show is so bad, I hate even talking about it, but it does deserve the conversation. Not because it's genuine TV, but because of the abuse and the abhorrent treatment these coaches and the parents inflict upon these 8- and 9-year-old kids. I cannot figure out if the producers of this show are trying to show kids abused or promoting kids being abused. Friday Night Tykes, which debuted Tuesday night on the Esquire Network, unfortunately takes us inside the world of Texas youth football in the San Antonio area. These folks take this league seriously, very seriously. Here's part of the trailer for this show. And just listen to the way the coaches and a majority of the parents talk about and treat these kids. This is the Texas Youth Football Association, one of the elite football leagues for kids in America. And the 8- and 9-year-old rookie division in San Antonio features the best of the best. Give me that soft crap. There should be no reason why y'all don't make other teams cry. I could care less if they cry. The teams are ultra-competitive, demanding commitment. This is where you earn your playtime. Sacrifice. And intensity. You can do this. You are stronger than this. Five teams. We come out screaming and yelling. Five heated rivals. Oh, we got to fight. We got to fight. Only one can win. You're so worried about winning that you're not playing. I don't care how much pain you're in. You don't quit. People, you guys forget that they are babies. Hey, if that kid comes across, I want you to put it in his helmet. Do you understand? Yes, sir. I don't care if you don't get up. Let's go. Did you notice only one mother stood up to try and protect her son in that entire trailer? The NFL voiced its concerns with the show last week, saying the trailer for the show was troubling to watch that the league featured on the show is not part of its heads-up football program, which seeks to improve safety in youth football. If you watch this show, you would see that these coaches don't even teach the proper techniques for tackling. Now, here was the response to the NFL dispute from Esquire. Friday Night Tykes provides an authentic and provocative glimpse into an independent youth football league in Texas, the spokesperson said. We believe Friday Night Tykes brings up important and serious questions about parenting and safety in youth sports, and we encourage Americans to watch, debate, and discuss these issues. Well, obviously, that is a politically correct statement. And when you watch this show, after you watch one episode, I would shut it off and never watch this show again. It revolves around an 8- and 9-year-old league. Why are these kids even playing tackle football at 8 and 9 years old? These kids are being coached by grown men. Grown men that obviously have no life. Who obviously have no idea what it is to play the game or how to even teach it. These grown men probably not wish, but actually think, they should have been hired to coach Texas University 
two weeks ago instead of Charlie Strong. Here's a snippet from Charles Chavaria, the grown man who coaches the junior Broncos. And just listen to what this guy has to say to eight- and nine-year-old kids. You have the opportunity today to rip their freaking head off and let them bleed. If I cut them with a knife, they're going to bleed red just like you. You go out there like junior Broncos, you play junior Bronco football, and you can do it. If you believe in yourself, you can do whatever it is you want to do in life. Do it now, though. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Do it now. This is a grown man coaching eight- and nine-year-olds. Telling them if he cuts the other team, they bleed. Something colleges in the NFL are trying to eliminate by calling a penalty on the throat-slashing gesture. USA Football spokesman Steve Alec released this statement yesterday via FTW. Youth coaches by nature are role models, and the language and scenes in Esquire Network's Friday Night Tykes are in sharp contrast to USA Football's core beliefs and what is taking place on the majority of youth football fields across the country. Football and youth sports in general provide meaningful learning opportunities, and it is vitally important that the right individuals have the training necessary to teach our children these lessons. If you think these grown men coaching are role models, or even the parents as shown in this show are role models, you need to reevaluate your priorities. Certainly, we have a problem with youth sports and parents in this country. And it goes into the coaching and how the kids are coached. But if you think for one second this is the way to fix it or explain it to you, you and I have a different definition of television. The show follows around different teams in the league. And one of those teams is called the Colts. And it is coached by a youngish guy named Marcius Goulot. He's a no-nonsense guy who seems to want his team to have a lot of swagger. Well, one of his players missed the beginning of summer practice because he was at his grandmother's house in Indiana for two weeks. The player's parents said they let their son do that every summer so he can act like a kid for those two weeks, which makes a lot of sense to me. You're only a kid once, so be a kid. However, from what I watched of this show, that was the only rational statement a parent made in the entire episode. The player, his name was Jaden J. Boogie Armour, and he was in for a rude awakening when he finally came back to practice. Goulot made him run and run and run, 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 and run some more while the rest of the team was actually on the field practicing. This kid ran so much, he almost puked and fell over. Finally then, the coach asked him if he was ready to practice. Jay Boogie, in the nicest and most respectful way possible, said, yes, sir. So what did the coach do? Well, you would think he'd let him come back onto the practice field, right? Nope, that isn't what happened. The coach told him to go run some more and then laughed about it with one of the assistant coaches. What you saw next was probably the saddest part of the entire episode. Jay Boogie riding home in the back seat of his parents' car, breathing deeply, crying, moaning, like someone had just punched him in the gut. Now, I'm a parent. I've been involved in youth sports. I've made my share of mistakes. And I've been involved with parents that knew absolutely nothing about sports or what we were trying to teach kids. Some of the parents, as you've heard, just drop their kids off at practice and then leave. They use coaches 
basically as babysitters. I could write a book, and I've often threatened to write a book, about youth sports and their parents. Most parents are living vicariously through their kids in these youth sports leagues, and that is the problem. I have no desire to tell people how to raise their kids. The issue, for me at least, is how the coaches on this show treat the kids. They act as if they're coaching older players, professional players, and they're not. They're coaching eight- and nine-year-olds who are barely old enough to tie their shoes, get up in the morning, and do their own homework. There is one moment where a kid went down with what coaches called a stinger, but looked like what could be a head injury. Now, a stinger is less than a head injury, but believe me, it's a very serious injury. It's a compression injury on the nerves in the neck, and without the proper treatment, it can lead to lingering effects over a lifetime. I know this because my older son was susceptible to stingers, and he played through them, not only in high school, but in college. These stingers led him to having to quit the game that he loved to play after his sophomore year in college. Now, what did these coaches do with this kid? They took him off to the sideline and sprayed water over his head while he cried. Yeah, like the water is going to fix everything. During the episode, we were introduced to Tony Coley, an assistant coach with a team called the Outlaws. He talked about how his squad was penalized last year for illegally recruiting players. He also proudly talked about how he spent $16,000 on new equipment this season. Oh, and he fired off this gem about the team's idea on how to play. I want you to come out of the gate knocking people in the head, he said proudly. We're going to bring it. Just how much can eight- and nine-year-olds bring it? The episode finally came to an end with Chavariah's team losing a game. Now, Chavariah was visibly distraught after this loss. He could barely get out the speech after the game while he was fighting back tears, folks. He said, it freaking hurts me because you have no idea the kind of work I put in. Sleepless nights, stress, the problem occurring at home because I'm here on the football field. Today was the biggest day of my life, and it didn't meet up to my expectations that I wanted it to be. So, Mr. Chevariah, what you're telling us is, is that a game involving eight- and nine-year-olds is the biggest part of your life? Does this guy have a job? Does he have any responsibilities? Does he have a family, bills, a car, a home? Is he emotionally stable? I found myself wondering where the parents were during this show. How they could allow some stranger who didn't even know their child two weeks ago before practice to treat their kid like they did. And realistically, where are the police? Had anyone treated their child and made them run like these coaches did, as I mentioned before, children's services would be on their doorstep within days. Now, obviously this happened during the summer, but if a teacher saw this at school and it was talked about, I would think the teacher would even call children's services. If this is what they portray on the show, I've just got one question. What happens being cut out of the show and ending up on the editing room floor? 
This is disgusting television. And what's sadder in this league and the tactics they use is even more disgusting than this show. I'm going to move on now from football and move into baseball. Yankees third baseman Alex Rodriguez has been suspended for the entire 2014 season, and he seems to have finally come to peace with it. In speaking publicly for the first time since his unprecedented PED-related suspension, A-Rod put a positive spin on the situation. A-Rod said he thinks that the year 2014 could be a big favor that Major League Baseball is doing for him because he's been playing for 20 years without a timeout. He thinks 2014 now is a good year to rest mentally and physically and prepare for the future and begin a new chapter in his life. A-Rod, as always, has a different view on everything than anyone else, including what is a timeout from baseball, because it was just one year ago that he was recuperating from hip surgery that caused him to miss the first three months of the baseball season. I would think that would be a timeout. This is probably the attitude that he should have had from the get-go because it seemed pretty obvious Major League Baseball was going to do whatever it took to get him banned. And when you're owed $61 million in the remaining three years of your contract, maybe just accept the penalty instead of trying to sue everyone. We're going to invite to our Ultimate Sports Talk microphones here this evening Kate Conroy from LadyLovesPinstripes.com. Kate, thanks for joining us tonight. Were you surprised that the suspension was upheld, shrunk? How did you feel about it? You know, I felt um, that I, I thought he was going to get suspended uh, for something, but I, I really thought it was too big still. I didn't. I don't really understand. The 211 was crazy, but 162 is still very high when um, it's a little confusing that they're charging A-Rod for three different counts of PED use when it, when it was all at the same time, just three different kinds with no failed test. So uh, I'm not – I, I go back and forth on this issue. It's very hard because baseball crossed such a line with their ethics, and it also – I think it speaks a much bigger problem in the sports world. Uh, players can pass PED tests so easily, then only the minority must be failing them. So I, I – I, I, I guess the suspension, it, it shocks me in a sense because I don't think it, it helped baseball in any way. I think both sides didn't come out well on this. Of course, Bosch's interview on 60 Minutes, Kate, um, mm-hmm. I think kind of clouded the issue. What did you think of that interview? Well, uh, it's hard to believe someone who's, who's, you know, made a career out of lying who comes on and now wants to tell the truth because it only seems like Bosch is the type of guy who does what benefits Bosch. So I, I I think it, I don't think he was necessarily lying about a lot of what he said, but I definitely think that it's hard to understand why how this guy should be really in jail, and and he's sitting here in a nice suit with security now and baseball's lawyers supporting him, and I think it's just I, I don't think it looked good for anyone, and I think in a sense I wonder if 60 Minutes paid him to come on. Or, I mean, baseball had to allow him to do that because obviously Bud Selig was in the interview and Rob Manfred. And I just think it made baseball look like they were trying to convince the public, us, that what they did was okay instead of letting the discipline and what they did speak for itself. Kate Conroy, our guest here tonight on Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Kate, 
Do you think that there are two different views of A-Rod, one inside New York and one the rest of the country? Um, I think, honestly, I believe that the, that the New York Yankee fans probably dislike him the most. Um, the majority, that, the ones that I know, really, and, they, and this is not just booing a player. It's been a while and that these fans, I mean, they have a major dislike for him. It's a minority in New York, I can tell you, that, that is a supporter of A-Rod. Uh, even before, I mean, this after this, I think he might have even gotten a few more people actually in his corner from this whole thing, from the people I've talked to that were that feel bad for him. But I think that I think outside New York, I think most people don't like the Yankees. So of course, there, I think that's more of a general. Unless you're Mariano Rivera or Derek Jeter, I think that there's a general consensus. But no, I think A Rod's got a pretty good percentage in both places, to be honest with you. <laughs> Kate, yeah. this morning Al Arod came out and it seemed like he had kind of made statements that he was coming to terms with taking the year off. Did you kind of read into that also? That's what I understood. Uh I, I understood that he I mean the thing when he thanked baseball, that was a tad confusing. Um but I I'm sure he's exhausted. Uh it's very expensive, these lawsuits, not even that, it's it's mentally exhausting and He's got two daughters. He's on the cover of every paper across the country, not the nicest covers, uh, you know, of the headlines. And uh, so I'm sure, yeah, I think he's coming to terms with it. And he probably needs a break, to be honest. Just a couple more questions, Kate. I know you're sure. in a hurry. Why is oh, yeah. he suing the Players Association? What's he trying to accomplish with that? I think he felt like they didn't support him at all, as they should have, um, coming to the I know they had a lawyer there, but they were pretty accepting right away of the reduced suspension of 162 games, and I think that upset him. And I think that if I, I, the Players Association, after the 60 Minutes interview, they were furious, supposedly, with making statements on, you know, pub, you know, public and stuff, saying that they were very upset with Major League Baseball. But it seems like a lot more talk with A-Rod than they're actually doing with him. There is no fail test, and, you know, that's what – in the bar, I mean, that's what they should. Be. I think that they're just, they were kind of sick of it too. And I think the one thing that makes it all very hard is because of Ryan Braun only getting 65 games when he had a failed test, lied to everyone, and, uh, you know, snuck through the system on a loophole. And I, I think that, that I think that he didn't feel like he had the backing of, of the Players Association as much as they should have. But yeah, I was very upset about the Ryan Braun situation too. The Yankees owner, Hal Steinbrenner, said today that. A-Rod is an asset, and he's looking forward to having him back in 2015. Is that just Yankee speak, or does Steinbrenner really feel that way? That's Yankee speak. He's very, I mean, uh, he's very, he knows what to say to just give you no opinion. You can't get, he doesn't, he's not a guy that makes you feel like you can side one way. It's very level, and I think he's just saying that because reality is they might have to deal with him for the next three more years. So they're they're not going to you know, come out and bash someone who they're paying, I guess you would say. But I'm sure he's, he's having a secret party that he doesn't have to pay the money this year. I'm sure that they could eventually let A-Rod go, but I, I don't know how easy his contract is to break on the Yankees end. I don't think it's that easy for them. They'll have to pay him a full $61 million, I think, if he accepts it. That's a lot of money to just let a guy sit. Hey, away from the bad with A-Rod and on to the good, I feel, with Derek mm -hmm. Jeter. Final question here tonight. Kate Conroy, our guest. Kate, um, Derek hit the baseball field. Is he going to be back to full strength this year? Well, I mean, that's what that's what we're banking on, I guess, or the Yankees are. I guess they're banking on it. Um, I think I would think so. Um, it's, shortstop is 
probably the most athletic position on the field. So at 40 years old, I mean, that doesn't happen ever really. So I, I don't know. I think that if anyone's going to do it, Jeter can't go out like on an injury, same like Mariano. I'm not saying these guys are gods. Mariano's position is obviously more hand, like it's easier to handle than Jeter's. I think that they'll keep his playing time, you know, limited. I, he won't put, maybe make more than three starts in a row, I would think. So let's hope. Uh, the Yankees are hoping are doing the same thing again like last year. They're banking on a lot of veterans who have had injury histories, who are stars, but if they go down, it could get ugly. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> our thanks to Kate Conroy of LadyLovesPinstripes.com for being our guest here this evening, talking about the A-Rod suspension. And one thing I do want to add, A-Rod says he's received support, not just from his Yankee teammates, but also players from other teams, retired players, Hall of Fame players, lots of good people, owners of other teams. Yet, of course, A-Rod neglected to tell us any names, and nobody has really come to his defense publicly. Well, two-time National League Cy Young Award winner Clayton Kershaw of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who turns 26 in March, has agreed to a new $215 million seven-year deal. This deal makes the lefty the highest-paid player in baseball and the first to make at least $30 million a year. And if the contract is divided up evenly over the seven years, and Kershaw, by the way, can opt out after five years, that's $30.71 million a season. Over the last three years, Kershaw has won two Cy Young Awards, He's averaged 17 wins on 33 starts, 232 innings, 236 strikeouts, and 105 pitches per start. Imagine just what Jim Palmer or recent Hall of Fame inductees Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin could make today. John Hart, the former GM of the Cleveland Indians and the Texas Rangers, said on the Major League Baseball Network yesterday the Dodgers wanted to spend the money on an experienced talent and the years of this deal Makes sense. You've got a guy at 25 years old signing this deal. He's going to be pitching there till he's 32 years old. That is still the prime of his career. Uh, I, I like a seven-year better than I like a 10-year. Yeah. Um, the AAV is what it is. You're going to be the highest-paid guy. Whatever that dollar is, Kershaw's the guy to do it with. When you are behind your closed doors and you're looking at the guys on your ball club, I and mean, this is a message I think for every player that's out there, that. It, it, nobody knows you better than the people that you're with. They've seen you since you were drafted. They've followed you through the minor leagues. They, they know everything about you. And I think the, the ability to have a guy that you trust, that you have character, if, if you know that guy, you are much more inclined to want to go big and to do what it is that you have to do to bring this guy in. Look, the, the Dodgers, since, they, since the new ownership bought this, this team, they have been doing everything they can to resurrect the Dodger brand. And mm -hmm. the Dodger brand is a special brand. And I, I think what better to do it with than your own guy. Kershaw was eligible for arbitration and would have been a free agent after the 2014 season. Over his six-year career, he is 77-46 and 46 with a 2.6 ERA. He's easily the best pitcher in Major League Baseball today. And we want to continue with our baseball theme on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. We want to invite into our microphones Bill Ivey from i70.com. And, of course, he's the featured columnist for the St. Louis Cardinals and Kansas City Royals on Bleacher Report. Bill, always nice to talk to you. How you been? Dave, it's, a, it's an off-season, but, hey, we're getting real close to spring training, so I'm getting better every day. 
<laughs> Boy, that, that's for certain. That's why we're kind of focusing on baseball here tonight. Hey, Clayton Kershaw today signing the uh, contract, seven years, $215 million. We've been talking about that on tonight's show. Is he, Bill, in your opinion, the one player in baseball that may deserve that kind of money today? You know, Dave, I don't know that anybody really deserves that kind of money, and a pitcher especially. I mean, don't get me wrong, Kershaw's been masterful, and he's he's definitely uh, proven that he's an ace-level pitcher that is going to demand a lot of money. But, man, it, it's so hard to tell if he's going to stay healthy through the length of that contract. And if he gets hurt just one time and has to spend a season to a season and a half on the shelf, it, that contract's going to look pretty bad all of a sudden, and I tell you, honestly, the thing that shocked me the most is the out clause. He's got that out clause when he turns 30 years old and the kind of way they skirted around the trade in there. He doesn't get a no-trade clause, but he gets the right to void the deal at the end of the season if he's traded. That It, it seems like a contract that is all player-friendly, and I'm not sure what the Dodgers got out of the deal. Well, I know the Dodgers have been trying to, according to experts, really rebrand their name, and they have done it. Boy, they're spending money hand over fist, it seems, Bill. They are, and I mean, and more power to them. I mean, they're putting together a good team. They've got good talent out there. It's just, at some point, you got to make sure that you're spending money smart and not just spending money to say, hey, look at us spending money. You know, it almost begs the question I've got to ask as we get into the Hall of Fame. Last week, two giant pitchers in our game uh, Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox, what would they make today, Bill? Oh, I tell you, and, and a lot of that comparison for Kershaw coming from Maddox, too, because he's had Maddox-like seasons. Uh, I mean, naturally, Kershaw's a, a little more of a power pitcher, but, you know, I, I don't know that Maddox would have made a ton of money. He probably would have been a, a normal, like, 12 to $15 million a year pitcher, uh, but I, Tom Glavin's the one that I think his his earning potential would have been through the roof because a strikeout pitcher in today's game, uh, definitely a little more valued than a guy that pitches to contact and pitches smart the way Greg Maddox did. Well, you know, of course, the Hall of Fame, as I said, the the voting was held over the, the last few weeks. and Dan Levitard of ESPN really made a shambles of this thing. Have we reached a point, Bill, where you feel changes should be made in the Hall of Fame voting procedures? You know, David, in the couple of shows that I've done over the last couple of weeks, we've heard that question over and over again. And uh, Honestly, I mean, naturally I feel like there should be something done, but at the same time, I think it deserves to be pointed out that the Hall of Fame is not owned by Major League Baseball. It's supported by Major League Baseball, but it's, it was an establishment formed by the Baseball Writers Association. So it, it's their club. It's their rules. It's one of those things that, I mean, looking on the outside in as a Major League Baseball fan, I want to see some things done differently. But at the same time, I can see why they do it the way they do it. And I think it's very important to note, and I've been saying this for a couple weeks now, there's two sides to the Hall of Fame. There's the Hall of Plaques. That's where all these guys get inducted when they're voted in and all of that. And then there's the museum. If you go up to the Hall of Fame and you walk through the museum, Pete Rose is there, Mark McGuire's there, Barry Bonds is there, Buck O'Neill is there, all because these players, you cannot tell the history of the game. You cannot tell the story of baseball without those players. They belong in the museum. The plaques are the hallowed halls. The writers are starting to take a stand and say, 
you know what, even if there are guys in there that shouldn't be in there, we're going to make sure that we're not putting guys in there that we don't feel should be in there. And there's two different sides to that, and I think that's very important for fans to understand. Well, you know, I asked this question of Mark Donahue last week. I'm going to pose this same question to you. Do you think the baseball writers are promoting their votes with the same integrity that they are demanding from the baseball players when they vote on them? I think it depends on the writer. It really does. And I I think that's a shame, and maybe there needs to be, if anything, I would like to see the Baseball Writers Association develop some more hard and fast rules about what they're looking at. You know, if they want to say, look at what they've done on the field, if they want to say you can't hold back on a player because of suspicion, they have to be either admitted users of steroids or they had to be convicted of it. I would like to see some more reform there so we had a more black and white ruling because I think you've got some guys like Dan Levitard that's going to auction off his his vote. He's going to do some things that don't show integrity to the game. And, I mean, the, the Writers Association handled that perfectly. But then you've got other guys that like Ken Rosenthal and that that I think are voting exactly how they feel uh, they hold the game to a higher standard, and I don't have a problem with them at all. Well, they're holding the players to a higher standard, Bill, and what what makes me uh, wonder is if they're going to hold the players to that kind of standard, how can they put in somebody like uh, Joe Torre and Tony LaRusso, who are managers of the players that they don't want to put into the Hall of Fame because of the steroid usage? I'm just posing that question to you. What do you think? Well, keep in mind, Joe Torre and Tony LaRusso are going in as managers by a veterans committee, not by the writers. So we're looking at two different things, and I'd be interested to know. I'd love to see a poll of the writers and say, would any of you vote Joe Torre and Tony LaRusso into the Hall of Fame, being that they were associated with that same uh, mentality and the same kind of concept? Because I think you might see a different approach there, but... It was a committee of, of veterans, and there were probably a few writers on there, but it was, a, it was a committee that put those guys in the Hall of Fame, not just a popular vote. Bill, what about Bud Selig? Supposedly he wants his legacy to be cleaning up the game, getting rid of the PEDs, but, you know, they became prevalent under his watch. Is he going to be held responsible? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I agree with you, right, that this is a guy that wants to – really put a stamp on, look, I, I was the first commissioner to run drugs out of my league completely, and I, I did it so emphatically, and I was so strong towards it, but it was also, I mean, it was under his reign that baseball had the steroid issue and had a bigger issue than uh, arguably any of the other major sports, so it's like the guy that gives the kid a piece of chocolate and then starts screaming, you put that down, look at me, I'm the guy that took the chocolate away. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I I don't know how he goes down in history. I think a lot of people tend to look at Bud Felix's uh, legacy as kind of being a, a bubbling, a, a struggling issue more times than not. And I think he's come up with some good answers, but I don't think that he did it in a very clear and clean way that we can say, oh, wow, what a great job he did. I think there's been a lot of things that happened that we looked at it and said, wow, he screwed that up, and now he's going to fix it. Well, Bill, let's go and take a look real quick at the St. Louis Cardinals. I've got to ask you this question. You know one of my favorite players in baseball is Johnny Peralta. 
Why Johnny Peralta in St. Louis? You know, the Cardinals needed a shortstop. And when they looked at the market and they looked at the the players that were available for the prices they were demanding and also looked at the players that were available via the trade market and the prices those teams were demanding to get those players back out of it, they really just didn't find anybody that they felt fit that role. And I think they see that in Johnny Peralta. Make no mistake that Johnny Peralta is an above-average shortstop who has the ability to be a decent center, left fielder or third baseman. And don't be surprised if that's not Johnny Peralta over the life of this contract. Keep in mind the Cardinals traded their third baseman this year. They're moving their second baseman from last year back to his natural position with Matt Carpenter playing third, and they're going to give Colton Long a shot. Now, they brought in Mark Ellis for kind of some backup there, but if worse comes to worse and they can land a shortstop in the next year or two, don't be surprised if Peralta doesn't slide to third and they figure something out elsewhere. Bill Ivey, feature reporter for the Cardinals and Royals for Bleacher Report and I-70.com. Thanks for joining us on tonight's show. Thanks, Bill. Not a problem, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, Major League Baseball also announced this afternoon that the owners, players, and umpires have approved the new instant replay system. Each manager will be allowed to challenge at least one call per game, and if he's right, he gets another challenge. After the seventh inning, a crew chief can request a review on his own if the manager has used his challenges. The so-called neighborhood play at second base on double plays cannot be challenged, and that's because many had safety concerns for the middle infielders being wiped out by hard-charging runners if the phantom force was subject to review. All reviews will be done by current Major League Baseball umpires at a replay center in Major League Baseball's offices in New York City. So the instant replay will be instituted for the 2014 regular season. Hey, it's time for our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Here's the good for this evening. A federal judge is allowing a central Pennsylvania 7th grader to be a member of the all-boys wrestling team at her middle school. U.S. District Judge Matthew Brandt says in a ruling on Monday that the Line Mountain School District failed to justify its reasons for preventing girls from wrestling with boys. The school district says there are psychological, physical, and moral risks for girls wrestling boys, but Brand says the district did not present any expert testimony or examples to support those claims. Brian and Angie Beatty of Herndon filed a lawsuit last year saying their daughter, Adriana, was being denied the opportunity to wrestle because of her gender. At those ages, I really don't think there's any reason that girls should not be allowed to wrestle with the boys. Well, in the bad segment for tonight, we've got a couple of stories about the Ryan brothers in the NFL. Tonight, in the bad segment, it's Rob Ryan of the New Orleans Saints, who appears to have a stellar NFL head coaching resume. The 51-year-old has worked as a defensive coordinator for four teams, including the Cleveland Browns, who are looking for a new head coach. But... According to ESPN's Chris Mortensen, he has said that several NFL executives have told him that Rob Ryan will not get a head coaching job until he cuts his hair. 
It's his flowing locks that won't fly with front offices. Mortensen said if he wants to be a head coach, he simply has to cut his hair. It's all about image for these guys. They want a CEO type, and that's what they want. And this puts Ryan in a hairy situation. He has the resume and the pedigree to be a head coach. And his father was a head coach. His brother is a head coach. But in order to do that, he may just have to shave his locks. And that moves us on to the ugly part of tonight's show. And that comes from San Francisco 49ers coach Jim Harbaugh. He's stuck in his ways. The 49ers coach looks the same every week. Black logo t-shirt, ball cap, red sharpie around his neck, and khakis, which come from Walmart. Sarah Harbaugh, his wife, hates her husband's pants. And she told 99.7 FM's Fernando and Greg in the San Francisco Bay Area all about it. Sarah says, I've thrown those pants away many times. And I've asked him, please, the pleats are gone. Wear the flat front. Well, we'll take Sarah Harbaugh's word that she has tried to make it harder for Jim to come to work wearing the same version of that outfit day after day. And he finds a way to thwart her attempts. She said... She threw them all out when they went to the Combine in Indianapolis last year. And what did Jim do? He found a Walmart and bought them again for $8. What he wears? $8 pants from Walmart. And that will do it for tonight's Good to Bad and the Ugly segment. It's NFL Conference Championship Weekend. And it's also time to look at the daily saga of the Cleveland Browns. Well, on Wednesday, Browns owner Jimmy Haslam sent an email to fans updating them on the team's coaching search. Coaches are being hired and withdrawing their name from consideration for what is being called the most toxic job in the league. Arizona's Todd Bowles and New England's Josh McDaniels stepped away from consideration earlier this week. And with Ken Wisenhunt being hired earlier this week by the Tennessee Titans, Jim Caldwell by Detroit, and Mike Zimmer finally getting a job in Minnesota, it left the Browns as the only team without a head coach. This prompted owner Jimmy Haslam to present a letter to Browns fans on Wednesday asking them for patience. Haslam said the team has spoken to a number of outstanding candidates and indicated the Browns will meet with assistant coaches currently in the playoffs. Haslam said in the letter released Wednesday, we have purposely been very methodical in our approach. We believe it is very important to stay disciplined to this process and to interview all the candidates on our list. We are strongly committed to finding the right person to coach the Cleveland Browns. Well, the Cleveland Plain Dealer reports two other candidates who have interviewed but haven't been removed from consideration are Seahawks defensive coordinator Dan Quinn and ex-Titans coach Mike Munchak. Mary Kay Cabot of the Plain Dealer also reports that the worst-kept secret in the NFL is that the Browns are waiting for Broncos offensive coordinator Adam Gase to exit the playoffs so they can try to snatch him up. And there's not even a guarantee that he'll be hired by the Browns or that he even wants the job. 
Now, I like Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. He has the experience, a proven track record, and enthusiasm. He's worked under a great coach in Jim Harbaugh, and he's worked and tutored with several successful quarterbacks, three of them being Andrew Luck, Alex Smith, and Colin Kaepernick. And those three names you've heard in the playoffs this year. Adam Gase is just riding on the coattails of Peyton Manning. He has been teamed with Manning as offensive coordinator in Denver for just one year, and Manning calls all the plays. I'm not even certain Gase game plans the offense. If they want to go to Denver for a coach, I'd rather see them bring in Jack Del Rio, the defensive coordinator, and that he be considered more than Gase. I'd also like the Browns to revisit Josh McDaniels, and it's rumored that McDaniels threw his name back in the hat for the Browns' job yesterday, but that's been unconfirmed. Haslam said the Browns, who haven't been to the AFC playoffs since 2002, will continue to be patient in their quest to find their fourth coach in six years. And what that means is, hang on tight, it's going to be quite a ride for the next few weeks. Also in the NFL, the New York Jets have signed coach Rex Ryan to a contract extension, removing the lame duck label and keeping him with the franchise for at least the next two years. Ryan, who had one year remaining on his contract, was retained by owner Woody Johnson for next year after his job appeared to be in jeopardy before the season even began. Expectations were extremely low outside the team entering this year, but Ryan led the Jets to a surprising 8-8 and finish that had players and fans clamoring for Johnson and general manager John Idzik to keep the coach. Ryan is 42-38 and in the regular season over five years and 4-2 and in the postseason. And keep in mind, Rob Ryan, his brother, cannot get a job because he won't cut his hair. Rex Ryan got the job with the Jets when he was overweight and had long hair. And since that time, he's lost weight and he's cut his hair. Well, the Super Bowl participants will be decided this weekend, this Sunday. And it doesn't get any better than Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady with a trip to the Super Bowl on the line. These two teams met in the regular season and the New England Patriots stormed back from a 24-0 halftime deficit to beat the Broncos 34-31 in overtime. Peyton Manning was limited to a season-low 150 yards passing in that game for the Denver Broncos, but Sean Marino ran for 224 yards. These two teams are a lot different since that November 24th meeting. The biggest difference is the Patriots don't have tight end Rob Gronkowski. Brady and Manning have met three times in the playoffs, with Brady holding a 2-1 to edge, but Manning won the last time they played, and that was in the 2006 AFC Championship game. Brian Billick of Fox Sports analyzes this ball game. Well, the biggest concern I have for the New England Patriots is the matchup of their secondary with this talented receiving group for the Denver Broncos. You've got to know that they want to come in, New England, and keep possession, time of possession, pound away at the Denver Broncos. But if this thing turns into a track meet, and you know that's what Peyton Manning is going to try to do, he's got so many one-on-one matchups. You can only put a key to league on so many people because they're going to throw Demarius Thomas and Welker and Decker 
and then Julius Thomas. And all they can also throw in those two running backs. That's going to spread the secondary of the New England Patriots so thin, particularly on the road for New England in Denver. This thing turns into a track meet. I'm not sure the New England Patriots can hold up. Well, Brady and the Patriots have been victorious in 10 of his 14 matchups against Manning. Manning and Brady have met twice before in the AFC Championship game. Each team won once, and each time they went on to win the Super Bowl. Seattle and San Francisco will have something to say about that in two weeks, though, in the Super Bowl in New York City. And those two teams have been on a collision course for this game all season long. They've faced each other twice this season, with each winning on their own home field. The Seahawks crushed the 49ers 29-3 in Week 2, and San Francisco beat Seattle 19-17 in Week 14. The 49ers are playing in their third consecutive NFC Championship game, winning one and losing one. The Seahawks haven't played in the NFC Championship game since the year 2005 when they beat Carolina 34-14. to This game is going to be all about defense and the running game. But which young quarterback will make the big plays? Will it be Kaepernick or Russell Wilson of Seattle? And who will make the big mistake? CBS Sports' Pete Prisco says Russell Wilson has to play better for Seattle to have a chance to win this football game. Well, he better play better than he has in the last five weeks. I mean, to be quite honest about it, he's gotten a free pass for not playing very well for five weeks. And he hasn't had to, but at some point you're going to have to throw the football down the field. And I think that's a concern for both teams moving forward, particularly for Seattle. Wilson, and I said it all along, don't make it easy on him. They throw a lot of slants. They throw a lot of one-read deep balls. Make him be patient. Make him stay in the pocket. If you can do that, I think he's ordinary. Well, Russell Wilson is anything but ordinary. But I think Prisco's got a point. The 49ers have six sacks in two games against the Seahawks this season. They've done a good job of containing Wilson. So the Seattle offensive line has to play better and protect Wilson better. But they also have to run block better. The 49ers limited Marshawn Lynch to just 3.6 yards per carry, while Frank Gore is averaging 6.5 yards per run. Pat Kerwin of CBS Sports examines who will have the better game at running back. Will it be Gore or will it be Lynch? Well, they absolutely need both of those guys to deliver for these quarterbacks who are mediocre as throwers to win. The reality of the game is Frank Gore has not done very well against Seattle, and it's up there. He has one touchdown, Adam, in his last six games against Seattle. Meanwhile, Marshawn Lynch, the beast mode thing, kind of was born against San Francisco. He has seven touchdowns in those last six games. Right now, the numbers say it'll be Marshawn. Whitner says they're going to target Marshawn. Everybody's tried to target Marshawn. Uh, they run that ball to the left pretty darn well. I'll say Marshawn Lynch outplays Frank Gore in this game. This game is going to come down to who makes the least amount of mistakes. Seattle has been the most consistent team all season, finishing with the best record and home field advantage. But in the second half of the season, the Niners are playing better. So comes down to prediction time. Who's going to play in the Super Bowl in two weeks in New York City? Metropolitan Life Stadium. Let's go to the AFC game. New England against Denver. 
I just cannot go against Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, which means that the Denver Broncos will probably win this game. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pick Denver to win this football game, even though I think New England is going to. For some reason, I just think this is Denver's year, and Peyton Manning is on a collision course with facing up with the San Francisco 49ers. I think the 49ers are playing the best football right now in the NFL of any team. They've been on the road ever since they started this playoff trek, and they're going to end it in Seattle one way or another. I think it's going to be San Francisco beating Seattle in front of those raucous fans in the state of Washington, and I think it's going to be Denver winning at home over the New England Patriots, even though I wouldn't be surprised if it goes completely the other way. But I'm going to select Denver against San Francisco to play in the Super Bowl in two weeks in New York City. Well, I want to go over a couple of other things tonight. First of all, the Cleveland Cavaliers have been playing better basketball as of late. Lou Deng really single-handedly won their game uh, the other night when they took on the Lakers. He had 27 points in that game and was 5 for 5 from the three-point arc. Now, last night, the Cavaliers played extremely well against the team with the best record in the Western Conference, the Portland Trailblazers, but they fell apart in the last 60 seconds and lost the game by 12. Still, the Cavaliers have one more game left on their West Coast trip. They're 2-2 two and two so far, and they play in Denver tomorrow night. And that should be an interesting contest because when the Nuggets came to Cleveland, the Cavaliers handled them pretty easily, and that was without Dang. But this one is on the road. It's the final game of a five-game road trip out west. But if the Cavaliers could actually win three of five out west, this could be the turning point of the season after this trade that they made for Luel Dang. Also in the NBA, the Boston Celtics are expected to have their star guard back in the lineup on Friday. Celtics GM Danny Ainge says Rajon Rondo will make his season debut against the Los Angeles Lakers, barring any setbacks on Thursday. Age said that Rondo is probably going to play about five minutes a quarter, approximately, and knowing Rondo, he'll probably complain about that. Well, a couple of other ancillary stories for tonight's show. In California, one Little League baseball player is being sued for more than half a million dollars for his celebratory helmet toss. And get this, the plaintiff is his coach. According to KCRA Television in Sacramento, Joe Paris's 14-year-old son scored from second on a teammate's hit to win the recent Lakeside Little League game. And as Paris crossed home plate, he threw his helmet in the air. That helmet, according to a lawsuit filed by Paris's coach, Alan Beck, hit Beck's Achilles tendon and tore it. Now Beck, a chiropractor, is seeking $100,000 to cover his lost wages and medical bills and an additional $500,000 compensation for pain and suffering. Gene Goldsman, Beck's attorney, told KCRA he didn't think the boy meant to harm him. Someone who volunteers his time to coach should not be subjected to someone who throws his helmet in the manner that he did, according to the attorney. 
what the kid did while well, it crossed the line. Paris's father, who said that his family has already paid $4,000 in legal fees and didn't have homeowner's insurance to cover the damages in the lawsuit, was understandably upset by the claim. Now, this case is set to go before a judge in March, and at that point, attorney Bill Portonova told KCRA there's a decent chance the lawsuit could be thrown out because the child didn't deliberately hurt anyone. But kids playing a kid's game is a contact sport. And according to Portanova, baseball is a contact sport. And that's going to be a tough case. Well, I would like to ask this attorney, what is his definition of a contact sport? If baseball is a contact sport, I'd hate to see his definition of what youth football is. Well, our final story on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show, we want to say goodbye to two television star giants in their day. Russell Johnson, who played the professor on Gilligan's Island for three years, died this morning, his agent confirmed. He was 89 years old. No cause of death was given except for natural causes. He died at his home in the state of Washington, according to Johnson's agent, Michael Eisenstadt. And Dave Madden, who played the long-suffering band manager Reuben Kincaid on the 1970s sitcom The Partridge Family, has died. He was 82. If you listen to this show any amount of time, you know that before the show begins, I play some music just to get into the show. Well, tonight, I purposely played The Partridge Family. Madden was the agent for the Partridge family, if you remember that show. He died of congestive heart failure and kidney failure this morning following a long illness. In addition to his run as Kincaid on the Partridge family, a role that he played from 1970 through 1974, Madden also had a steady role on the sitcom Alice, playing Mel's diner customer Earl Hicks. He also guest starred on a number of series, including Bewitched, Married with Children, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And that's going to do it for our show tonight. Our thanks to Kate Conroy from LadyLovesPinstripes.com for talking to us about the Alex Rodriguez suspension. And also our thanks to Bill Ivey for being our guest here this evening. And, of course, Bill has been a longtime guest, and he's from I-70 and, of course, He's the featured reporter for the St. Louis Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals for Bleacher Report. Our thanks to both of them for being our guests here this evening. Of course, that music tells us it's time to go. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell also for being the producer of our show. And our thanks to you most of all for listening. Join us again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock as we continue to talk sports on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show here at ultimatesportstalk.com. Thanks a lot, everyone. Talk to you again next week at 7 o'clock. Until then, have a good weekend. Enjoy the football games, and good night, everybody. (laughs) 